Hi, I'm Mickey Lowe. Hi, I'm Bishop Todd. And welcome, welcome to, to the, the C4SO, C4SO podcast. podcast. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another week of the C4SO podcast. This week, we are wrapping up our church planting series, and we get the chance to talk to Michael Funderburg from Waco, Texas, and Matt Brown from New York City. What I like about uh, our episode today, Mickey, is that our listeners will get to see that church planting is so different. Contexts are different, and planters are different, and visions and philosophies of ministry are different. There's just so much really good difference in church planning. And today they get to hear two really different but fun journeys. One where uh, Matt is bivocational, uh, where Michael and Waco is kind of working on like a second phase of planting. You'll get to hear about their love of their very diverse communities. Like what could be more different, right? Than Waco, Mm -hmm. uh, Texas and Brooklyn, New York. And so I love the diversity that comes out of this, the God diversity that creates Mm. new churches. A real treat to get to sit down with them both and hear their personal stories, how they ended up where they're at, and how the diocese is supporting them. So please enjoy this awesome conversation that we have today with both Michael and Matt. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you much. Good to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, you guys are rounding it out. No pressure, but we yeah. we, we saved you guys for the last. Like everybody else was warm up acts. You're like the <laughs> <Yes>. Rolling Stones. <laughs> You got to bring it. Yes, no pressure at all. So we're going to give our listeners the chance to get to know you both a little bit. Um, We'll get into, you know, your ministry experience and journey. But for now, let's kind of start with maybe some fun things about you guys. So Matt, let's start with you. You have an interesting tent making job. Will you tell our listeners what you do kind of on the side? I have been bivocational for a number of years. I was consulting, uh, doing business development. And then I was hired to do business development for a new startup brewery upstate New York. And after about a year of that, the owners came back to me and asked if I would stay on uh, and continue working with them as the as the CFO and as head of business development. So I've been here for about two and a half years. We opened a little over a year ago, and I kind of managed a lot of the projects, the construction of the brewery, and um, and now kind of are, I'm trying to work our way toward a little bit of profitability so I can stop wearing, staring at red numbers every week. That would be great. Mm. So wait a minute. You're a priest and you run a brewery. Like this sounds like the <laughs> basis for a novel or a country song, right. a hook for a country song or a joke <laughs> like... A priest walks into his own brewery. brewery. Like, this is fascinating. Well, I guess maybe it's more like bringing the medieval church into the modern world. So if Bishop Todd and I and Michael and, you know, the three of us were to visit you today, uh, what would you serve us? Like, what, what are some of your top picks? What would you give us on like a flight of beer? Oh, man. Great question. So I would uh, I would definitely start you with our what is my current favorite beer, which is our year old fooder aged Saison, uh, and we we put that in a fooder, which is a big oak barrel. We put that in uh, mm-hmm. the fooder last year when we opened, uh, and it has black currants in it, and it's a very very delicious saison. Okay, uh, we Man, would I also, thought it was like I would, speaking New Testament <laughs> Greek there for a minute. I don't even <laughs> yeah, know what those I know. words it's so mean. <laughs> I would awesome. also serve you. 
uh, I would serve you what is I, I, one of my favorite beers here, which is a, a just fresh Berliner Weiss. Uh, it's a it's a lighter beer. Uh, it's great for the summer months. I enjoy it a lot. Then also, let's do a tasting of four because that's what we serve. Mm-hmm. I would serve you our I Love It Lager, which is a Vienna lager, a little bit darker lager with some nice caramel notes at the end. Okay. Uh, it is called I Love It because the town that our brewery is in is called Tivoli, New York. T-I-V-O-L-I. And okay. so I Love It. Uh, is Tivoli spelled backwards? Oh. And so oh. I love it. Lager, clever, is uh, is kind of our local brew. And then our last brew that I would serve you would be our Heartbeat of the Hudson. That is a beet stout. Uh, mm. It's an English okay. style beet stout, and we we do flavor it mildly with beets because okay. beets are huge produce here in New York State, and we are a farm brewery. You, we have to use over 75% of our ingredients uh, coming from New York State. Okay. Um, we're, probably at, we're probably at over 90%. Uh, and New York State happens to be the second largest producer of beets in the country. And so wow. that is that. our nod right. to New York farming. So we're going to get to Michael in a minute, but um, I can just hear all the young clergy listening right now, Mickey going, first of all, Hunter's a poser. He doesn't even like beer. And saying, I want <laughs> right, to hang right, out with Matt. Or saying, can't Matt be bishop? Something like that. Oh this has gosh. to be going on with our young clergy. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, after watching your schedule... If I was to become bishop, then the beer would go. Then the beer would go away immediately. Yeah. Man. So, so Matt, seriously, people don't know you. How is it that you really are a competent? I would say, kind of highly skilled theologian. Uh, you do beer. Give give people a bit of your. Uh, your theology background. Uh, well, first, I'm very flattered by that description of me, and I'm not sure that, that it fits entirely. Yeah, but you are. I do, <laughs> I do love being a pastor. I am by a vocational in order to be a pastor uh, more effectively, I think. Mm-hmm. And I worked for many years to to become by vocational uh, for what I would consider missional reasons. Um, yeah. I think the. Having pastored and planted a number of churches in New York City over the years, I was—I I led a church planting network. Uh, we planted six churches in Brooklyn, and over the years, I started to just feel like we were trying to force a a Christendom model of church planting and mm. ministerial leadership into a very post-Christian context, and and it made me start to ask why we do it that way and why do most pastors around the world and through history have other jobs yeah. uh, and it's not just for financial reasons i don't believe i think a lot of it is for missional reasons and it is it's been important for me to be a part of uh something outside the church it gives me a it gives me entry points into conversations and relationships mm-hmm. that I otherwise would never have. It also gives me, I think, a different, a different level of interaction with a number of my parishioners um, who no longer see me as just operating in the church and not in the, quote, real world. Yeah. I think that is a, I think that's a mischaracterization, a misunderstanding of what pastoral ministry is. Um, yeah. But 
but it's a perception nonetheless. And so being bivocational does give me a lot more, I think, credibility and gravitas in certain situations with my own congregation. It gives me more opportunities for missional conversations. And it's also kind of fun. It's also a lot of work. I'm not going to lie to you. It's really a lot of work. Mm, Yeah, we believe it. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing, Matt. Now, Michael, let's turn things over to you. Let's give you the chance to let our listeners know a little bit about yourself. And uh, you recently moved to Waco from Plano. Is that correct? Yeah, the Dallas area is where I was living. Okay. Yeah. So kind of my burning question for you is, have you made the pilgrimage to Magnolia yet? And I say that (laughs) as a huge fan. So it's very important to me. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Well, I live really close to it. Okay. Uh, it's awesome. I've been once. Yeah. No, we have not made the pilgrimage. I, I, it is, it is tourist season though. So Um. it's funny because a lot of our folks at all saints are connected to Baylor currently. And so our numbers take a dip as everyone goes on vacation once the semester's Mm -hmm. over. Mm -hmm. Um, and downtown and that area around Magnolia is buzzing, you know, with student life, especially, especially, like coffee shops and Chipotle and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden it's quiet and then tourists come in. So right now is the, the time of the tourist. Mm. Um, you see, you can, you know, you can tell what a tourist looks like. They're walking around with their camera or, you know, gladly walking around in in a hundred degree heat, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, walking their way to the silos and Magnolia headquarters. Yeah. That's so awesome. yeah, Mickey, I, uh, I, when we were preparing for this episode, I told Mickey that when we were moving to Nashville four years ago this summer, Debbie, my wife made sure we drove through Waco just so we could go to Magnolia. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah, it's a absolutely. thing. It's become yeah, a it's, thing. It is. It's, it's a kind of pilgrimage people take. You'll, you'll it see is. that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, well, it's interesting the effect Magnolia's had. I mean, it's, um, I think it's good. It's good overall, and it, it there are certain things that Waco would not have. I, I mean, this is just my opinion. I may be wrong, but we Waco would not have without it. There's some really cool revitalization that's happening downtown. Mm-hmm. My wife went to Baylor. I won't say how long ago, um, mm-hmm. and she said back then you didn't go to downtown. Like there was nothing there. It was just kind of a ghost mm-hmm. town. And so there's been a lot of like fresh life. Yeah. I think brought in the wake of um, the revenues that just come from the tourism and, and the life that Magnolia has brought. And on the other side of that, there's challenges because uh, you have an almost 26% poverty rate here in Waco. Um, and there's lower income folks who've been living in homes for 20 and 30 years and suddenly mm. they're getting close to being priced out. So right. with, yeah. with development, there's always challenges. And so that's, yeah. that's an important thing that, that I hope we keep in mind, missionally speaking. So how's it work in Waco these days? Who gives who a run for the money to uh, sort of be the iconic uh, thing in Waco? Is it Baylor mm. or is it Magnolia? Yeah. No, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, because both of those have really, I think, been instrumental to Waco's rebirth. I don't know what you want to call it, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, just the success of Baylor in the last 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Um, becoming a, a you know top tier kind of research university sports obviously um yeah. successful basketball you know basketball teams and right. football for a while there so a lot of that's attracted a lot of 
attention to Waco. But yeah, it, you know, it's funny because Magnolia is on one side of the interstate and Baylor's on the other. So there's this kind of tension yeah. they hold, mm-hmm. uh, probably vying for um, attention and yeah and, uh, for the heart and town. soul of, to be the icon of, of right. Waco. Yeah. yeah 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 so here we are today i'm looking at my screen with michael funderberg and waco and matt brown in brooklyn and mickey in tampa and um not only looking at three very different contexts in which to establish a church but three uh really different ways of doing it and as we uh, come to the end of this series on church planning it reminds me that if i do look back over four and a half decades of being involved in church planning that there are certain practices and patterns and people write books about them and rightly so you know uh, you know from tim keller's books ed stetzer's bob logan's i go on and on and on the i used to have a whole library of books on church planning and so there's obviously um something there in terms of uh kind of norms or averages and the way things happen but seeing you guys on my screen reminds me that there's also very unusual ways um in which things happen. And so it's going to be fun today, Mickey, to, to, to dive into a couple of unusual stories. Yeah. I mean, that's really kind of why we brought you guys on today is we want to hear your stories and we hope that the stories uh, of yours will encourage us toward cultivating sort of an imagination for the various ways that new churches are established. It's not always, uh, you know, starting a church from the ground up. Sometimes it's um, stepping into a church plant that's in the latter, you know, stages of the process or, you know, merging congregations. So we we hope to kind of hear your stories and be encouraged and sort of give us a new imagination for what it looks like in different contexts. So, Michael, I'd like to start with you in Waco. Um, you know, you've stepped into a plant in process. Tell us your story. Uh, what's it like having moved from pastoring at more of a larger church to stepping into this new context uh, in the stage that All Saints Waco's in? First of all, just it's been wonderful, uh, the whole process, just personally speaking, um, from discerning whether we should come here, uh, have a family, you know, have teenage daughters. And initially I found reasons not to do this because of family reasons primarily. It's been really good. And I think for me, I never saw myself as a church planner from the ground up. I just don't jive with those gifts. Um, you know, they have a certain skill set and it's wonderful, you know, the, the people gatherer. Um, and that's not necessarily me. And so what I was discerning for some time was, is I still felt this pull toward church planning. I just didn't know what that would look like, whether I would join mm-hmm. someone or whatever. And so it, it became for me just for months, just kind of a, a thing I would just kind of revisit on occasion. And so I, I found with all saints, what was really wonderful was God actually provided something for me that I couldn't have arranged better. Um, in just having someone who has that skill set, like Father Matt Autry, who planted All Saints, he has those those gifts of just like getting something going and drawing people in. Uh, he's a he's a wooer, you know. He woos people in, and then me seeing this vision that he 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 had and saying that's the kind of vision I would have for a church plan and just being able to come in and 
pick up where he left off and begin to um, take All Saints into a new season. Um, it's been, again, it was the kind of thing where I really just had to wait. Like it wasn't, again, like I, I just didn't feel called to go out there and start th- something from scratch. Um, and, and just in God's timing, he provided something, uh, for, for me. Um, so yeah, it's been really exciting and, it, and it's a, it's an exciting time, I think, uh, to be here in, in Waco and, and pick up where Father Matthew left off. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Cause I wonder how many people hear that and go, you know, I find myself in a similar place. Like I feel called to planting somehow, but maybe I'm not the one to start something from the ground up. How can I join in a different effort? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad you share that because I'm sure that there are other folks who kind of feel that as well. And God definitely uses that. So what has been the most surprising to you in this process? Like how are some of the ways that God has uh, shown up for you, um, surprised you? And then, of course, I'm sure challenges arise from this sort of process. So we'd love to just kind of hear your honest thoughts on that as well. It, it was all, It's almost a year ago that my family and I visited Waco just for a family trip, um, mm-hmm. just to bring my son down to this, he's seven years old, to uh, the Mammoth Monument, which is outside of town where there's a big mammoth dig that, that That's awesome. you can go visit. Yeah. Um, and it was really there that this started. And it was just this prompting that I should reach out. And, um, and so what was surprising was I think when I just trusted that process and didn't try to make too much of it and just opened myself to it, that a door kept staying open and then kept staying open and Mm -hmm. kind of the same thing was happening for father Matthew on the other side, just this process of releasing this into God's good care. Um, and then having him just keep a door open. So some ways surprising, but in some ways not, because that's how God works, um, that you can, you can trust him to give you what you need as you wait and watch and pay attention. Mm-hmm. And so that's very much what that whole process was like, which was just very confirming. Um, again, for someone like me who, again, didn't necessarily feel those gifts to start something from scratch, but to just watch and wait and see what God would do. The challenges with this situation and Brad named this when I started. He said, you're, um, you're going to come into a situation and folks are going to take a, you know, breathe a sigh of relief because the rector's here. He's like, and you're still a church plant. So the mm-hmm. challenge is to stay on, you know, on, a, on a footing as a church plant with a vision yeah. as a church plant, right. missional as a church plant, you know, still you know, making connections. Um, people inviting people in, um, just that whole hospitality thing. And so that that's the challenge we're working on right now. And just with my family and I just being here now almost four weeks on the ground and, and me commuting back and forth for many months, mm-hmm. we're just now starting to get to a place where I think where we're going to really be emphasizing that more now that I am here, where we can right. really say, okay, this is what we are. We're a little outpost of God's kingdom in Waco. We're here to be on mission, to be a blessing to this community. Uh, so how do we do that? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so it, it's it's a fun challenge, but it is a challenge just yeah. to um, to come in and keep people, I think, and myself even in that that frame of mind that we're still a church plant. Matt, let's talk a bit about Brooklyn, and here's why: you personally, in your story, 
merged with something that has always been a, a really important conceptual tenant for me. And that is beginning with my own call to church planning and then virtually everything I've seen over the decades that most church planners have this almost crazy, almost irrational love for a place or a people. You know, like over the years, people will say, oh, I want to go to this little town in Texas and plant a church. Well, why? I don't know. I just have this crazy passion for this town. Or I want to go to the southeast suburbs of Cleveland. Like, what for? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so let's get into that a little bit. I just know from the couple of years we've known each other that you have this genuine passion for Brooklyn. How's that? worked into uh, ministry for you and your the church planning you've been involved in there for years now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't, I, you know, reading through the New Testament, I'm not sure Paul loved every city that he planted a church in. I'm not sure that you have to absolutely love a place in terms of have preference for it or yeah. um, have have a, a, an overriding affection for it. Um so I do consider it God's grace that I do love New York City and I love Brooklyn, where I am. And we've been here a long time. So we moved to Brooklyn in 2003. Um, prior to that, we were uh, serving the vastly overprivileged in Westchester County. And uh, I was uh, living in Greenwich, Connecticut. So we came into Brooklyn as part of the Redeemer Network. I approached Tim and our presbytery uh, and said, hey, Tim, you know, Tim being Tim are, Keller, Tim Keller uh, and and said, look, we we talk a lot about church planting in our in our circles here, um, but we as a network have not really done anything in Brooklyn. So I'd like to throw my hat in the ring. And back then, uh, it was more of the uh, sex in the city attitude toward Brooklyn. You know, you knew it was out there, but you wouldn't go if you didn't have to. And so everybody in that in those circles just said, yeah, great, have at it. Uh, yeah. And so moved our family to a neighborhood called Park Slope uh, and did that with the intention of starting uh, multiple neighborhood churches because Brooklyn kind of identifies itself by neighborhood. So, so we did that. And raised three kids in Brooklyn uh, who don't really know anything other than city life. Uh, our oldest was, uh, I think, four, almost three or four when we moved mm. to Brooklyn. So she doesn't, she doesn't even know anything other than Brooklyn. And we have loved living there, even though it has changed a lot since we moved there. In 20 years, Brooklyn has become a brand. Um, we now have an NBA team. And we've got uh, a lot of high rises and yeah. it is just, I mean, it's insane. So the, it was always a very populous borough. It's the largest borough in New York city, uh, about two and a half million people. And so for me to say that I love Brooklyn is actually an overstatement. I don't even know Brooklyn that well because mm. it's so big and it is, it is a city of immigrant communities and um, and it would be almost impossible to to have exhausted have an exhaustive knowledge of it uh, in a lifetime um, I've worked at it and I really do like where we live and I've liked being a pastor here and you know I've been involved in multiple kinds of church plants 
since being in Brooklyn. Uh, the first church plant that I started was, again, in Park Slope, which is bougie and, uh, you know, serving predominantly uh, white-collar workers. It's It was racially diverse, but not economically or socioeconomically diverse. And then we started our second congregation in Williamsburg, which uh, at the time was very hipstery. Uh, now is still hipstery, but also very bougie and wealthy. Also has a very large Jewish community. And then our third church plant was in Flatbush, a largely African-American neighborhood. Then Clinton Hill, and then Brooklyn Heights, and then Sheepshead Bay. Our Sheepshead Bay congregation, by the way, this is back when I was a Presbyterian. So our Sheepshead Bay congregation came out of came out of a, a very significant uh, like disaster relief project following a, a hurricane here that hit the neighborhood of, of Sheepshead Bay very hard. And so as a result of that, we rebuilt a lot of houses, spent millions of dollars on that. And then the neighborhood was asking for a church. So uh, we kind of started a church, which was a very different experience. Normally, you just kind of pick a place where you kind of want to live and think people might resonate with your work, and then you just move in. Um, so being asked to be somewhere was refreshing and fun. My current church, Christ the King, started during COVID uh, with about eight people worshiping outdoors in a park. Um, we started our, our official worship service on Christ the King Sunday in 2020, uh, and then grew that for a little while. Uh, we started renting an, uh, an ELCA congregations building, uh, which was fun. Uh, and then a church that did not have a pastor in Williamsburg asked me if I would, uh, do pulpit supply for them. Um, in the mornings, Christ the King service was in the afternoon. Um, this congregation uh, was worshiping in the morning, so I did. I preached for them uh, about a year and a half ago. I started that, and then last summer they approached me and asked if they could merge their church with ours. And I said, if by merger you mean you dissolve your congregation and then become part of Christ the King, that would be great. And so they voted to that end back in uh, last August. So so our church has been living with this kind of merged yeah. existence for almost a year. And it's been great. We kept both services, and we're trying to cross-pollinate them. During the summer, mm -hmm. we are worshiping uh, for the month of July only in the afternoons. And then in August, we'll be worshiping only in the mornings and encouraging everybody to come together um, mm -hmm. so that we can get to know one another even better than we have. Um, and it's been, it's been a fun adventure and it's not been without its challenges. I think it's been mutually beneficial. Christ the King, uh, has benefited from having more people in our, in our church and a deeper pool of, of spiritual gifts that we can tap into and exercise. And, the other congregation, the the congregation from Williamsburg, has benefited from, I think, just surviving for another year. I don't think that they 
I'm not sure that they would have continued on uh, as a church much longer yeah. than they had. Hey, by name. Saludos, my name is Jonathan Kinberg, and we want to together invite you to our second annual Diaspora Network Conference. Our theme this year is Mutuality and Mission. What does it look like for immigrants and the broader North American church to really partner together? The conference will be on July 28th and 29th in Austin, Texas, and it's for immigrants and leaders from C4SO who want to partner with the nations here. See you soon. So having you guys on, as we said at the beginning, is to demonstrate that um, church planting can happen in different ways and church planters can engage with this in different ways. Uh, Michael, as he said, kind of finishing uh, a process. Um, and Matt, with you, say a word about in your vision, in your heart, what's the kingdom goodness in this merger that you're doing as an aspect of establishing a, a new church there in Brooklyn? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think I, I would I would actually say I'm not sure yet. How's that? Okay, fair enough. Um, it's a very young church, and we are still trying to figure out our identity and trying to figure out what our our unique gift mix might be. And how What's the hypothetical can... goodness that led you down this path? Like what was what was the win that you were seeing for the kingdom to establish a new church in this way? I think the win for the kingdom, uh, from my perspective, uh, was having a church that was first speaking with an Anglican accent. Mm. There are not a lot of those in New York City. Mm. Um and yet New York City is a is a place with a lot of global connections. Yeah. There are a lot of Anglicans from around the world who move here even for a short time. Mm-hmm. And I think that it would be good for them to uh, have more congregations where they could can connect mm. uh, and and experience uh, a little bit more familiarity than they than they may yes. otherwise. I think that's helpful. Uh, I think our congregation could probably benefit our neighbors by being a more global, globally connected and globally minded community Mm. Um, in in the sense that we are not satisfied with just being Anglicans. Um, That's actually probably not what motivates us very much. It's not what motivates very many people in our churches. What we want to be is a church that is speaking to the vibrancy of the Christian faith in a city mm-hmm. that does not see Christianity as very vibrant, right? Um, but but is more connected to a modernist paradigm in which the church is seen as passe, yeah. irrelevant, and mm-hmm. and potentially even harmful. And I think that we as Anglicans are trying to pursue a different vision and embody a different embody a different faith whereby we believe that our worship is central to who we are. We believe that worshiping and serving Jesus is central, and we have to be explicit about that, and also understand that that therefore pushes us into serving the common good and loving our neighbors actively. 
So Mickey, I'm wondering what you're thinking or feeling as you hear these intentional kind of outlier stories this morning with mm-hmm. uh, what Matt's doing in Brooklyn and Michael in Waco. What are you, what are you thinking and feeling as a little bit more you and Travis, a little bit more of a traditional church planner? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely really inspired by you know how how God orchestrated the story of you know Christ mm-hmm. the King and yeah. you know all these other forms of planting and it's encouraging to me um, because, you know, part of our jobs as church planters is to, you know, not just do the work of planting, but also discern who among us is called to planting as well. And, you know, how do we raise churches that are already pre-built to, to plant more churches. And Mm -hmm. so hearing you guys' stories is inspiring because it helps us as planting, even from this form that we planted with, which is, I guess, more traditional. It helps us identify all the other ways that this could go about and identifying the gifts of those around Mm. us who could also be called to planting as well. Uh, It may not necessarily be, okay, we're going to start something from the ground up. Once there was nothing, now there's something. It it can look different ways. So, yeah, yeah, it's inspiring and it is... um, it's just a good reminder for yeah. us, even as so. That's planning. cool. I hear you saying it inspires you for maybe someday being a mother church, exactly, and how you could do it in lots of different ways. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Good. So, Michael, I'd love to ask you this question: As someone who's moved from one context to another, what would your advice be to someone who's discerning a similar call? How How would you advise someone to? learn to love and care for a community that they're maybe newly rooted in? I think it's really important, and it's been important for me, just to come in listening a lot Mm. and asking Mm. lots of good questions, Um, especially in my situation where someone had already done the planting or at least the initial phase of the planting. Yeah. Um, Just to come in and spend weeks, months, really, just opening my door metaphorically speaking, because I didn't have one, uh, but right. allowing people to just visit with me so that I can ask them about their lives, mm-hmm. what God is doing in their life, um, what they detect is going on in All Saints, why they came to All Saints, like what is it about All Saints, and just all kinds of questions like that. So you can just really get a sense of what is this place already so that you know, I'm not coming in with an agenda. I'm coming in, hopefully, detecting what God is already doing. Um, and any agenda that I end up formulating, uh, any vision, any mission that I feel like we need to be moving into is coming from this really informed place of listening and just kind of opening space for others. So that's been, that's really like for me, that's what I've been doing since I started in January. Um, and since, I don't know, since the spring or so, I've really been trying to formulate, articulate, visualize what is All Saints going to be? What, what do I believe God is calling us into? Because I, I feel more comfortable than actually naming that um, yeah. and just not coming in with like, here's who we are. Here's what we're going to do. That, that's the difference, you know, between that ground up model and yeah, this, totally. whatever we want to call this one. Um, I think interest group model is what Brad Swope called it when he and I mm-hmm. initially talked. So just being real patient and just very careful to mm-hmm. really make sure that you're detecting what what people are saying, uh, what people are hearing. And then, you know, whatever God has laid on your heart, 
it's just coming from that, that more informed space. Uh, it's coming um, and it's actually speaking in. And then I've even had language that I've gathered, you know, that's helped me articulate better just by that listening process. So it's yeah. been really, it's been really fruitful. You said earlier in the show that you weren't sure about your gift mix temperament, you know, background, whatever, how that might've played into church planning. And one of my favorite Christian expressions of the latter part of the 20th century was Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., uh, led by Gordon Cosby. But the the lady author who wrote their story was a, a woman named Elizabeth O'Connor. And in one of her books, I can't remember which one, it might have been called and committed, or it could have been her book on the gifts of the Spirit called The Eighth Day of Creation. She she wrote something that I've remember, I remember decades later, and that is that new callings often evoke new gifts. That, you know, lots of times we have sort of a gift assessment approach to things, right? Like we take a gift Mm -hmm. assessment, find out what our spiritual gifts are, and then say, oh, that would enable us to do this certain calling. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think O'Connor was right. And I've seen it in my own life that sometimes hearing God's calling and obeying it, it it brings new gifts uh, to the fore in our lives. I'm wondering if you're noticing that. Are you seeing the spirit work in you in new and surprising ways because you said yes to this calling? Yeah, no, that's really good. No, I think that's true. And and I think that's true because you stop relying on those things that you see as your strengths and Mm. maybe some other things that are hidden uh, behind those layers of your strengths get to come to the fore. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've always seen myself as an imaginative person, a person with vision, um, just to grow up with an interest in art and music and literature, poetry. Um, That's my background. Um, I'm not a businessman. And years ago, and I think this is probably where when I was struggling with my calling, I had a friend say, we come from Dallas. So (laughs) it's uh, a lot of the folks you say, you see leading the church, they have, um, you know, not that kind of background. They don't have that kind of uh, right brain humanities, artistic background. They have business mm-hmm. backgrounds or they have engineering yeah. backgrounds. And I remember him saying, I would just love to see more poets in the pulpit. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, Hey, yeah, that's a great word. Um, and that's, and that years and years ago is where this kind of started. Uh, for me. So like, that's kind of the world I've been in. But what's happened is I think as I've opened myself to kind of the the risk, mm-hmm. or just the, you know, just following God into a mm-hmm. season of uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, is that some of those gifts that I never thought I had are there. So administrative gifts, yeah. they're not great. Uh, yeah. Don't don't get me wrong. Like I, they're taxing even. Like that's not my skill set, but mm-hmm. they're there, they're there. Um, yeah. because I have to do it, and um, it comes right. out. And I, I, or just you know, learning. You know, the more you learn about your own family of origin, and you work through your stuff, um, you start finding you have a different voice, and you learn how to um, ask for help. Uh, mm-hmm. from those people who can help you and you learn how to find who those people are. So yeah, there's a lot of that, that I think as I've had to not rely on the things that I've identified with so strongly over the years that, um, especially on that kind of administrative side of things, um, that have been allowed to surface a little more, more, more pragmatic kind of gifts, mm-hmm. uh, that I, I might not have thought I had in years past. 
Yeah, good. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. So Matt and Michael, you know, the three of us are in the church planting cohort together and led by Brad Swope. Um, and we could talk all day long about how great Brad is. Um, so I would love to kind of hear from both of you. We'll start with you, Matt, how you've been, you felt supported by the diocese in the process of planting, what you found uh, to be helpful. Just what are some of the ways that C4SO and its leadership came alongside you in this process of planting? I think that started... Um, even before I was in C4SO, I, I felt blessed by, by Bishop Todd's generosity of time toward me. Mm. Uh, he was willing to engage a lot of the questions that I had, uh, for a long time, I've been wanting to get out of Presbyterianism and into Anglicanism, not because I think Anglicanism solves all the problems. I don't think that at all, but because it was a, uh, it was a more honest expression of what I think, um, is a more missional engagement of the world. Um, mm. I just think yeah. having bishops is a, is a good thing. And that's another podcast, but, um, it, it was a little bit awkward coming in from Presbyterianism because I was in a situation where I would, you know, ask, uh, I would try I'd reach out to various, uh, bishops and ask them if they would chat with me and many would, uh, and Todd was especially generous in that. Mm. Um, and so I appreciated that uh, a lot and I've seen that spirit of generosity carry forward um, especially in Brad and in Chris McDaniels and other leaders in this uh, in this diocese, and I I very much appreciated that. And so the diocese has helped us in practical ways. I think you know we've gotten we've gotten uh, a small stipend from the the diocese over the last couple of years, and I thought that was that was very helpful and. I think that relationally is where I would say the strengths of the diocese are. Um, the cohort's very helpful. Gathering us together on a regular basis has been very helpful and encouraging. Uh, I like being together and hearing one another's stories like this um, and sharing meals together is one of the things that, that feeds my soul and and keeps me going as as a pastor and priest. I, I just, and so I think C4SO has been invaluable in that. Mm, yeah, I agree with all those things. Michael, what about you? What's your bit? What's been your experience? Yeah, no, Matt's word generosity comes to mind too, for me, yeah. um, from Bishop Todd, especially with Brad, especially again, in my situation coming into a plant that's been in progress and just helping me name you know, just giving me that time and always saying, Hey, if you want to chat, even if we're not meeting as a cohort, so just that time and then treasure, um, as Matt was saying, uh, practically, you know, it's C4. So it's been very generous, but it, for me too, it's the relationships. And I think for me coming in down here in Waco from Dallas, uh, and already having a bridge to Austin and Cliff mm -hmm. Warner and yeah. Christchurch Austin and those folks right. down there was huge, mm -hmm. very big. Um, and just there already being those relationships that uh, Father Matthew had built um, was mm -hmm. just really big just to feel supported, just just to know mm -hmm. that we're not doing this by ourselves. Uh, we're not alone. Uh, mm -hmm. So they, too, generous with time, generous very practically. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's just been very encouraging from 
the, the beginning. And that was one of the big quote unquote selling points for me was that connection to yeah. the Texas Deanery um, as I was coming in, because I knew that was a, a healthy um, connected body yeah. of churches that I was excited yeah. to be a part about. Mm. Yeah, that's right, Michael. That's so good. Yeah. And we said this on the show before, but the work of planting or stepping into new ministry, it, it can be very daunting and there's always the potential of maybe feeling sort of isolated when in reality, and, and I've talked about this, but Travis and I's experience has been nothing but like overwhelmingly being connected to other planters and other, um, you know, ministers in C4SO. And we have just f- never felt alone in this process. And I think that's just invaluable. Like it's so easy to be like, Hey, I, I, I'm starting this new thing or I'm taking over this thing. Here we go. It's not like that. It's you're not on your own and there's other people you can call on. And there's so many great examples of leadership in our own diocese. So we, we are so grateful for that. And um, yeah, we, yeah, here, it's just here. the best. Well, I think every form of Christian ministry is heroic to somebody. I mean, chaplains are in some ways heroic to me. I love people who God's raised up to be theologians or counselors or therapists or whatever. But if I'm honest, this totally subjective church (laughs) planners have just always had a special spot in my heart. So seeing the three of you on my screen is a special moment for me. And something that Matt said earlier just reminded me that when I started C4SO, I started it as an enthusiastic but amateur missiologist. Like I'm not a professional missiologist, but from the time I was 19 years old, I've had this massive curiosity about the intersection of gospel and culture and church. And that's what made me become an amateur uh, missiologist. And just to say that if there's anything consistent in culture, it's change. And change means newness. And that's the good thing amongst many others of new churches Mm -hmm. is that they can plant in 2023 and they can address the issues of today. They weren't planted in 1973 to address those issues and then can't get out of it. They are able to sort of start fresh with what's real today. And it's it's what I love about it. And and I I really do love my therapist and I love my theologian friends, (laughs) but I just got to say, church planters uh, have a really soft spot in my heart and I've appreciated this series with you Mickey very much wow me too we're grateful for you Bishop we're grateful for your leadership thanks so much for tuning in to the C4SO podcast if you like what you heard please feel free to share this episode and subscribe and leave a review it helps us to get the word out thanks